0: Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Plant Powered People podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane, and Tony Okamoto. We hope you are having a great kickstart to your new year. Today, we are excited to be doing an episode that is sort of a deep dive into health and a lot of the misconceptions that are out there about health, especially different health trends, things you might have heard of that, that you've heard are healthy but may not actually be. As we're stepping into the new year and so many of us are trying to eat healthier and treat ourselves right, (laughs) we figured this would be the perfect topic to dive into.
1: So we brought on a friend of ours. His name is Dr. Matthew Nagra. He is a naturopathic doctor based out in Canada, and he shares a wealth of knowledge. Michelle and I were just eating it up. And uh, we hope that you enjoy.
0: Yeah. He talks about things like the keto diet, the paleo diet, low carb, and are those actually healthy? What about eggs? And what do you say to people when they think eggs are healthy? Or if you feel that that yourself, that you need them, um, people are scared of soy or sugar, or carbs. Do you need calcium for strong bones? What about the collagen hype? What about bone broth? We go into it all in this episode.
1: And- while you're setting your New Year's intentions, we feel like now is the perfect time to hear this so that it can help you make decisions on exactly what you want for yourself for the rest of the year.
0: Definitely. We do want to make a note as we were recording this with Dr. Nagra, we had a few little technical issues. So if the audio gets a little bit choppy at some parts, please forgive us, but it does get so much better at the end. So carry through, power through, everything that he's saying is there's such little nuggets of wisdom that it that's worth it so hang with us. We are really excited that the sponsor of this episode is our very own cookbook, the Friendly Vegan Cookbook. It came out in October and is our little baby, Pride and Joy, and has been a great help to so many people. We're so grateful for all of you who have already gotten the book and have been loving it, loving it, sharing your photos of our recipes. It just warms our hearts. So if you haven't picked up a copy yet, you can head over to any of your favorite book retailers or friendlyvegancookbook.com and you can order a copy there. Without further ado, let's jump into
1: the show. Hi Matt, thanks so much for coming on to the Plant Powered People podcast. It's great to talk to you.
2: Yeah, it's great to talk to you too. Uh, thanks for having me.
1: I met Matt in Washington, just outside of Portland, in November 2019, and I feel like we're besties because I'm obsessed with your work. I I want to work with you as many times as I can, and I'm so glad you're going to be talking to me in real life here on the show today.
2: Oh, thanks. Uh, That means a lot. And I I love what you've been doing as well. Same with Michelle all throughout social media over the past several years now.
0: Thanks. I've been having fun watching all of the Instagram takeovers you've been doing on plant-based on a budget and seeing what you're eating in your days. (laughs) It's so much fun. Glad you like it. So we
1: brought you on today to talk about some healthy habits in the new year and to bust some misconceptions around health. But before we jump into that, we want to get to know who you are? Uh, can you start by telling us where you're from and what your family was like, and just a little bit more on a deeper level about yourself?
2: Yeah, um, maybe I'll, I'll give you a little bit about my sort of transition into plant-based nutrition too. Then it can kind of tie all that together. But I am a naturopathic doctor in Vancouver, BC. I'm actually at my clinic right now, Tenumi Integrated Health, and I've uh, been practicing since last September. I actually took a year off between finishing schooling and uh, opening up practice to go travel around and you know enjoy life a little bit, since I didn't really take any breaks all the way through schooling. Going back a little ways, I have been a 100% plant-based, now vegan, for, I want to say about nine and a half years. And that started actually about 11 years ago, when I had a personal trainer who really promoted plant-based nutrition and, and plant-based eating, and at least reducing animal food and junk food intake. And one time, he wanted me to record everything I was eating. So he gave me what's called a diet diary, which is something I do with a lot of my patients. where I record everything I eat for about two weeks. And at the time, my diet was absolutely terrible. I was eating a lot of McDonald's and junk foods. And and actually, my house was the house that all my friends came to to eat all the sweets and treats and and all that. I thought, well, he's gonna see what I eat, and he's gonna know how terrible it is. So let's just cheat the system a little bit, and I'll just eat super healthy for a couple of weeks. And so I did that. I cut out all the dairy, all the junk food, a lot of the animal-based foods, although I still had a little bit. And I just felt better. started losing weight, my skin cleared up, my asthma got better. And at that point, I just realized, okay, maybe he was onto something, you know pushing this whole plant-based nutrition thing on me. Um, and I decided to stick with it. And so I slowly over the course of about two years, I uh, transitioned more and more, I kept reading as much as I could and learning more. And eventually, I got to university and decided I wanted to go all in, uh, in my second semester, I went 100% overnight, and um have never looked back since. And my parents, um, I, I do bug them now about, you know, how much junk food I ate when I, when I was younger, but they didn't know any different. And I think that's kind of the situation we're in now with a lot of the general population, people just aren't aware of the impacts that these sorts of foods can have on our life, on our health. So that's what I'm here for. Like That's what I'm trying to do is try to inform as many people as possible about how they can take control of their own health by just choosing what it is that they're putting in their mouth.
1: Sweet. So you, you mentioned that you have been begging your parents. What were they feeding you as a kid?
2: I want to say I had cereal. Uh, actually, I hated milk. I did not like dairy. I, I Most of it besides cheese. I did like cheese, but I really didn't like dairy milk. But my mom would always force me to drink it because, you know, it's good for your bones and you need the calcium and all those common kind of myths that we hear. So that was one. So I'd have a cereal with milk. My lunches were often tuna sandwiches, uh, maybe a little bit of fruit or something on the side of that. And then for dinners, dinners were all over the place. Sometimes I'd have the hamburger helper uh, meals. Sometimes I would have Occasionally, steak or fish or whatever, but a lot of the times, uh, spaghetti. That was my big thing. But it was spaghetti with meat sauce, so it was beef sauce, not not a healthier version with like tomato sauce or pesto or something. So I, I would say it's pretty typical of what you'd see in most Western populations, uh, whether Canadian or uh, American.
0: What did your parents think when they found out that you were jumping into the plant based space and changing radically what you were eating? Like when you came home to visit them. Did they start cooking differently? Were they thinking you were crazy?
2: (laughs) So my my dad was actually quite supportive because my personal trainer, the one who was training me, um, who influenced me, uh, he actually knew him very well as well. And he knew that he knew what he was talking about. He didn't know necessarily that I knew what I was talking about, but he definitely knew that that the trainer was uh, on top of it. So um, he was actually for it. He thought it was a good idea. My mom, she also trusted me and that I, I knew what I was doing and that I was well informed on the topic. But at the same time, she was concerned about things like calcium. She was definitely concerned about me not having any milk, especially at the time I was um, a teenager and you're still growing, your bones are still developing. And so that was definitely a concern. But I feel like for the most part, they trusted me. Now, when we get to my grandparents or, or you know more extended family, they were very concerned. But as far as my parents, I think for the most part, they did at least trust that I knew what I was doing um, and that I'd be okay.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So So many people don't have any support from their parents. So even that you had full support from your dad is huge and that your mom was, uh, you know, trusting you and allowing you that freedom and also respect as a human being to like kind of step along that with you is awesome.
1: Have they shifted at all in their diet since you switched over in yours?
2: Yeah, it's, it's really funny. So my dad actually, he had a, a heart attack at 40 years old, or at least um, it, there's a, a little uh, mix up between the different doctors about whether it was a heart attack, maybe it was just unstable angina, which can uh, lead to a heart attack, it's a, another condition. So there's a little bit of, of un, uh, there's a there's little bit of lack of clarity around what exactly happened. But he had some kind of heart issue uh, when he was just 40. And he was very young. He was fit, athletic. People saw him, perceived him as a super healthy person. And then after I started making a lot of these changes, it took years. It did take a while. But he eventually started shifting as well. And then I think it's been about five, maybe six years now. He's been 100% plant-based, maybe like one slip up or something in that time. My mom now for the past three years or so has made the, the change. And then my sister was, she went vegetarian, maybe I want to say also about three, four years ago, but has been strictly plant-based, strictly vegan since January, since January 1st, I believe it was a New Year's thing. So they all eventually came around. It just took a while.
0: That's amazing. I wonder if it's a testament to just how open-minded your parents happen to be, or if having a a son who is a doctor, <laughs> you automatically get more credibility and people take you a little bit more seriously because I know for so many of our listeners and for Tony and myself personally, the path was definitely not not so simple. and those conversations were, were were a struggle to be taken seriously at all when you're talking about plant-based eating. So that's wonderful to hear your parents.
2: I hundred percent agree, and it wasn't it wasn't like I had to jam it down their throats or anything. There was a little bit of interest at at different points throughout. We'd go on vacation and they'd try to eat like me, you know for a, a week or two weeks whenever uh, or however long we're gone. But there were points where they tried to make changes. They wanted to get healthier and they would make some changes, but then they'd plateau. So my parents actually went vegetarian before they went all in, uh, a vegan. And after a while, my dad made the switch to vegan and my, my mom, she was still stuck at that vegetarian um, kind of stage. And she said, she, her excuse sort of was that, you know, I've made so many changes, I'm doing so well, which absolutely she was. But I eventually, after she was kind of in that stage for years at this point, I just sat down with there. I, like, I was like, look, you've talked about how you've made these steps, but there's so much more you can do. And like, at some point, you've got to take the next step. And it was just kind of bringing her to that Uh, realization that uh, she's hit a plateau and she's been stuck in this plateau forever. And and, uh, it's time to at least try the next step and move on. So it can just be a long process. It may take smaller steps like that. You may need to give them a lot of time before they actually want to take the next step, but just being somewhat persistent, but maybe not uh, totally jamming it down their throat.
1: I'm curious why vegetarian for you wasn't, it didn't seem like enough for your mother, I know. For me, if one of my family members became vegetarian, which just seems so far fetched, I would be like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> you're vegetarian! The best thing ever!" Uh, and so, what <laughs> was it? More health for you because because you're a doctor, because you understand the benefits, and we're of course going to dive into this a little bit deeper in a minute. But um, what was that drive for you to get your mom from veg to vegan?
2: Um, there's kind of multiple areas there, I think. So. She originally made the change for health reasons. It wasn't uh, ethical for her. For me, it started as a health uh, switch as well, and then it became ethical afterwards. She was making this change primarily for health reasons, and I would explain to her, like, look, if you want to reap the full health benefits, it's going to be better to get rid of... I know you're not eating a ton of it, or you're saying you're not, but you're getting rid of that extra dairy and whatnot in your diet. But then, from an ethical standpoint, like I did have my family watch things like Earthlings and Dominion, and I'd have these conversations because... I'm not super public with it on social media, but I am an animal rights activist as well. I do go out and do some of the um, like grassroots a- activism and whatnot. And so I would just explain all that to them. And my mom never really understood why I do that or why I care so much about it. So I'd try to explain like, look, this is really important to me. And, and um, like, you've done all these things already, but it's just such a small change. It, it couldn't, I couldn't get past the fact that it was such a small change to make at that point. Because it wasn't even it wasn't even that she was vegetarian and eating, say, dairy all the time. It was just like when she was eating out, she didn't want to bother, you know, focusing on what menu items can I have and that sort of thing. So she just didn't care as much in that sense. But uh, yeah, eventually something got through to her. I'm not sure exactly what it was. I think I challenged her actually to, I bet you can't do it for like a, a month or something along those lines. And, and she uh, uh, eventually... Took on the challenge and found that it wasn't actually all that difficult, and so she was able to stick with it. And funny enough, so I volunteer at an animal sanctuary. My parents got to visit for the first time just this past weekend, and uh, my mom loved it. She absolutely loved hanging out with all the animals, the cows. She was like snuggling up next to them. My dad was kind of scared of all the animals, which is really funny. But uh, yeah, my mom absolutely loved it. And So now I I was able to explain, like, do you understand why I uh, I'm so passionate about what uh, all of this and uh, what I do?
1: I think that. What you're saying makes so much sense. We expect so much of the people uh, who we keep the closest to us, and we want the best for their health, and we want to introduce them to our deepest passions. So it just makes so much sense. And it seems like, although you were really passionate about animals, that that was something that you did gradually in a way that wasn't so in your face, and it didn't make them feel bad, which we appreciate.
2: Yeah, no, it's, there's a right way and a wrong way to do. It. I've actually had uh, some of my friends here in Vancouver, like ask me to just give a talk on how to convert your family or whatever, but I don't think there's any rule to it. I don't think there's any special plan to make that happen. I think everyone's going to be different and maybe I got lucky.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, I want to transition a little bit mm-hmm. to your profession. What is yep. a naturopathic doctor exactly?
2: So it's going to vary depending on where you're from a little bit. Uh, Our training, um, there are nine or I think there actually might only be eight now accredited schools in North America. And depending on where you're located, what you can actually practice varies a little bit. So basically, it's like here in British Columbia, we're very much like family doctors or, or GPs in that we see a lot of the same conditions, we'll treat a lot of the same conditions. I do have prescriptive authority, so I can prescribe medications if necessary, but I have a way bigger focus on uh, more lifestyle interventions. So diet, um, physical activity, and then I also do a lot of what I call physical medicine. So these are things like um, physiotherapy uh, type um, therapies and then some chiropractic type therapies as well. So that's kind of my wheelhouse. Beyond that, we also have training in nutraceuticals. So those are things like supplements, um, herbal treatments as well, uh, acupuncture. So we do have a pretty broad range of of therapies that we can do. But my biggest focus is definitely the nutrition side of things. But like I said, it's totally going to vary from province to province and state to state. I know some states uh, aren't regulated at all. So you can't even really be a naturopathic doctor there. Some states like Washington or Oregon, I think are really good for regulation and what they can do. So uh, it's it's a little bit tough to give like kind of a broad uh, sense of what exactly they can do depending on where you're located.
1: When you were in school studying to be a naturopathic doctor, was nutrition something that they focused on?
2: Oh, huge focus. It's uh, every year. The only year we didn't have specific nutrition classes was our fourth year. And actually, I'll give a little background on that. In order to become a naturopathic doctor, you need to get all the same prerequisites that you get for medical school. So a four-year undergrad degree, I did mine in microbiology at the University of Victoria. And then you go on to do four years of your naturopathic medical training. And the first two years of that, all of the basic sciences, anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, um, microbiology and all of that is going to be very similar to what you're getting in uh, a medical school. And in fact, we've had medical doctors actually come through our program to get their ND degrees as well. And uh, they've even said that that it's, it's very on par. And actually, in some cases, like our physiology, they say it's above and beyond what they learn or what they uh, believe is even necessary. So the education that we get around all of that is pretty extensive. Of course, we don't have quite as much education around things like pharmaceuticals or emergency therapies, uh, and then of course surgeries and, and those sorts of things as well. But that's where we get more into like the nutrition and, and all of that. Uh, but it is a huge, huge focus on nutrition.
0: That's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of the things that we hear a lot now is how in just to become a doctor. I think, don't they require something like four hours total of nutrition training within that route? And so when you go to the doctor, uh, just a traditional doctor and expect to get nutrition advice, maybe you'll get lucky and get a doctor who has also studied that. But oftentimes you don't. Okay. I know a lot of people who are very either, I will only see a naturopathic doctor, or I will only see a traditional medical doctor. And it seems to be a very, I don't know, uh, separated groups. Can you talk a little bit about like, do you think there's a place for both? Could you like, yeah, can you just speak to that a little bit?
2: (laughs) I think the best setting is to have both. Absolutely. I always uh, refer my patients back to their GPs for certain testings, diagnostics. I don't think like, I I don't think in any setting, I don't care which type of practitioner you're talking about. I don't think seeing one practitioner is always going to be the best. Having having a multidisciplinary team is always going to be the best route to go we can send to the medical doctor to like, while like I said, I do have prescriptive authority. I can prescribe medications and manage medications. I would rather the medical doctor who has more training and that deal with more of those sorts of concerns. Well, maybe I work more on the diet and then I can also run some testing and and whatnot myself. I think the benefit of a naturopathic doctor in cases of say, if we're treating type two diabetes, for example, where we're modifying diet well we can actually modify medications as well if need be because that's something that we often see with plant-based diets especially you may need to lower your medication dose in a case with a a medical doctor they may not have the training around diet and for a dietitian they wouldn't be able to uh, modify medications accordingly without working with the doctor as well which is totally fine do both but i think the more people that we have on the case the better and the more expertise we can share Um, especially if we're talking about really complex cases where they're seeing specialists like endocrinologists and there's no way I can offer what they are from a medical standpoint. But obviously I've I've the expertise in the nutrition side of things.
0: So a lot of doctors are starting to recommend turning to a plant-based diet, which is really exciting and something that wasn't happening in the not too distant past. So can you talk a little bit about why this is becoming a route that a lot of people in the medical field are turning to and encouraging?
2: Uh, I think because the science is getting stronger and stronger. So if we look at uh, the recent American Cancer Society recommendations to avoid red and processed meat, to eat more plant-based foods with an emphasis on plant proteins, those are recommendations given uh, for oncologists really more than anything. They're the ones treating cancer patients. The USDA dietary guidelines are going to be coming out very soon and they just released a preliminary report that talks about very much the same thing, shifting towards more a plant-based diet. More recent Canada Food Guide um, also said the same thing, shifting towards a plant-based diet, choosing plant proteins or, over animal proteins, making water instead of dairy your uh, beverage of choice, which is a huge change. So we're having these just massive organizations making these recommendations. Actually, on top of that, the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association now recommend either plant-based diets or Mediterranean diets as the preferred dietary choices for preventing heart disease. So because these organizations that kind of oversee the professions are actually digging into all the research, compiling the data, and finding that this is clearly beneficial, it's able to make its way down to the, the actual professionals themselves. Because if we look at most uh, doctors, like they don't have the time to go through all the nutrition research out there and to figure out what's best uh, and what's not. They need their these um, committees to actually come up with the guidelines for them. And that's exactly what they're doing. And it's always shifting towards a plant-based diet every single time. So I think that is one of the biggest uh, reasons why we're seeing this.
0: Okay, question. Have you dug in at all into why this wasn't always the case? (laughs) Like, why is it just now that all this research is coming out and the the medical recommendations across the board are shifting to plant-based? Have you dug into why we were so off track before (laughs) as
2: a human species? Well, it's hard. Like the last, the last, couple decades especially there's been a lot of research coming out especially around diabetes like dr neil bernard from pcrm he's uh, conducted some really good research in the early 2000s as well so it's just compiling but it's been around for a while like we've known this for a while dr ornish's research on heart disease treatment was published back in 1990 uh, so that was you know, a really long time ago now as far as research is concerned so Why it hasn't been uh, published or why these guidelines haven't been made until now, I'm not sure that there's sort of a threshold that they need to hit for research. If we look at actual guidelines on, say, medications, they they have very strict guidelines on what exactly the criteria is that a certain medication needs to meet in order for them to be um, on the market and for them to be promoted and used across the board or for them to be a first-line therapy with diet, we don't really have that. Like we don't have these strict guidelines about what's necessary. And there's always going to be controversy. Like we have the dairy industry going like crazy, trying to publish research saying that saturated fat is okay. In fact, just a month ago, or not even a month ago, a brand new article with the most hilarious conflicts of interest I've ever seen. Like the conflicts of interest page is like two pages long of just listing all the conflicts they had in the dairy industry. It's just unreal. They just came out with this uh, new article. And my guess is because the USDA guidelines are going to come out soon and they want to push dairy for that. That's just a guess. So don't take that to the bank. But I think that's largely why it's because they have these really high expectations for the quality of research that we see with say medications that doesn't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily be applied to diet because it's really tough to do that. But then on top of that, we've got all this pushback and we've got all this what I call a kind of marketing science out there that tries to incite doubt. And the really funny thing about a lot of this research on say saturated fat, or this research saying that, you know, dairy and meats and and whatever, are okay, they don't actually, for the most part, there are some exceptions, they don't usually say that these foods or that saturated fat is healthy for us, they don't actually usually say that it's beneficial, they just say that it's not harmful, right? So it's just they're just doubting whether or not it's harmful. They aren't actually showing that it's helpful. So if, even if we take that and we accept that and we say okay, we have research saying it's bad for us, we have research saying that it might not be bad for us. I would still lean towards playing it on the safe side, right? But then we can go through their their science anyway and show how flawed it is um and it, and I've made several posts about that, all the saturated fat and cholesterol nonsense out there, but um that's kind of where it comes from. And I know that's a really long-winded answer to your question, but hopefully that answers it.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting space to be, where a lot of the general nutrition knowledge that exists across human beings comes from marketing campaigns from mm-hmm. industries trying to to sell products. Milk does the body good. You need calcium from milk to for your bones to get strong bones for your teeth, like eggs for your yeah. protein. Like we just we we have these things ingrained in our minds that did not originate from the medical community, did not originate from science. They originated to sell products for an Mm -hmm. industry. So yeah, you're doing some good work and facing a lot of myths that exist and have been spread far and wide, which is what we kind of wanted to jump in today was a lot of the health misconceptions that are out there. It's the new year. People are Trying to step into healthier eating, healthier practices. And there's a lot of sort of trendy diets out there and thoughts that could have people actively focusing on doing things that may, in fact, be doing the opposite of what they hope.
1: I was just talking to a gentleman working on our bathroom and we had lunch together. I served him a delicious plant-based meal and we talked a little bit about plant-based eating. And he said, So what do you think about keto? I'm thinking about <laughs> trying keto and my girl my girlfriend's doing bright bright line? Brightland? Bright Bright, line, no, bright. Brightland's yeah, the yeah. olive oil. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Bright line. And uh, and and so what do you think about these? And I, I wanna be respectful, but how would you answer a question like that?
2: Um, Well, I'd ask first, like, what are they doing the keto diet for, right? To to lose weight. Okay. Yeah. So if they're doing it to lose weight, well, um, actually, this is kind of the the best study to date on this subject was just um, um, sent to journal. I actually don't think it's even fully published yet, but the results were put out early. And uh, it was what's called a metabolic ward trial. So they actually had people volunteer to live in a hospital for a month. So they were just living in, you control, you know exactly what they're eating, you measure all of their blood levels, um, their weights, Uh, you do DEXA scans, which is a way to measure like body fat percentage. And they had two diets, they had the plant based diet, which wasn't even that healthy of a plant based diet, there was a lot of refined grains and, and stuff that maybe we don't want too much of against a animal based keto diet. And they know that these people were absolutely following a keto diet to a T. These people know that the plant-based dieters were only eating plant foods. And they measured um, the weight and everything before and after. And they actually found, oh, and I should actually mention that it was two weeks on each diet. And then they switched and did the opposite diet. So everybody did both diets. And so on the keto diet, they actually had quicker weight loss. So they lost weight quicker within the first couple days or first week. But then by the end of two weeks, the weight loss in both groups was the same. So the plant-based dieters lost the same amount of weight as the keto dieters. However, what's really interesting is when they did DEXA scans, measuring actual body fat uh, percentage and lean mass, they found that the keto dieters actually didn't really lose body fat. They lost lean mass. So they lost mostly water weight and maybe even a little bit of muscle, whereas the plant-based dieters lost almost just entirely fat. So the plant-based diet was actually superior. But when someone goes on a keto diet and they lose weight really fast within a few days, they're all happy about the number on the scale, not knowing that they're actually mostly losing water weight. They aren't actually losing a a ton of fat mass, which is what we care about. And then the other things they found was that um, the keto group was more insulin resistant, meaning that they didn't uh, uh, respond to uh, blood sugar as well. Uh, So that's obviously bad and a risk factor for diabetes and so on. But that on the weight loss side of things, um, yes, a ketogenic diet will produce quick, short-term weight loss, but it's not body fat and uh, it's only going to be short-term. You're not going to notice super good long-term weight loss uh, by the sounds of things.
0: Just taking into account weight loss, right? Not the other things that eating that sort of diet can contribute to in the long run.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's without all the cholesterol and everything else.
1: I also have a hard time believing that eating or not eating fruit is healthy and i my parents have tried keto and they're like oh i, I can't eat an apple or i can't eat watermelon or, all kinds of things that i feel like in my life uh those are the healthy things that i want to be eating
2: they are absolutely um the global burden of disease study is the largest uh, study on disease risk factors in the world and obviously they found the number one thing that's killing us is our diet right no surprises there But within the diet, there are three, the top three dietary risk factors for premature death are, or actually it might've been death and disability. I can't quite recall that uh, specific um, stat, but it was number one, too much sodium. So too much salty foods, probably a lot of processed foods in that sense too, but too much sodium. The second one was not enough whole grains. And the third one was not enough fruit. So not enough whole grains and not enough fruit actually topped not enough vegetables and too much red and processed meats. That's how important whole grains and and fruits seem to be. And now on fruit consumption, everyone's worried about the sugar from fruit and uh, blood sugar control, diabetes. There is not a single study out there showing the whole fruits increase risk of diabetes. Actually, it goes the other way. The more fruit you consume, the lower your risk of diabetes because fruit's incredibly healthful. And because it's packed with all the fiber, we don't absorb the, um, the sugar into the bloodstream super fast. Even dates, for example, which are quite sugary by most standards, they don't raise blood sugar very fast. They're actually considered a low glycemic fruit. Yeah, the, nobody should be fearing fruit. Fruit is absolutely healthy. Berries are the healthiest, probably, of the fruits, or most nutritious of all the fruits. But yeah, definitely don't want to be don't want to be limiting fruit ever.
0: Yeah, I just looked up this stat that I've heard before. Um, This is from the cdc.gov website. And it says just one in 10 adults meet the federal fruit or vegetable recommendations. One in 10, 90% of people aren't getting enough fruit and vegetables, which is crazy.
2: Yeah, an average fiber intake in the US, I believe is 16 grams per day. And depending on if you're male or female and depending on which country we're looking at, you want anywhere from like 28 grams to 38 grams a day. So they're getting like half of what they need.
0: Gosh, this is so fascinating. So uh, another popular diet is, well, okay, were we just talking about keto or paleo? Are they still We're just talking about keto. Okay, yeah. Paleo, can you talk about paleo at all? <laughs> and the health implications of that?
2: Paleo is a huge step up from keto for sure, from even the standard American diet. What do they recommend? They recommend cutting out junk food. They generally recommend uh, lowering dairy intake, They're usually okay with some whole grains, maybe limiting some up, but uh, the one place that they really mess up is with fruit intake. Again, you need to be eating your fruit, or you should be eating your fruit. But if we're comparing it to a standard American diet, it's definitely beneficial. But compared to a whole foods plant-based diet, it's not not a chance because we're looking at, again, fiber intake, it increases. We know that paleo dieters generally eat a lot of meat in their diets, and that's going to be really high in saturated fat. Which is going to raise cardiovascular disease risk which is the number one killer of course and so for those reasons i tend to stay away from it um, and promote more of the whole foods plant-based diet again knowing that it is certainly better than the standard american diet but what's really funny about it is that it's called the paleo diet as if that's what our paleo ancestors ate but our paleo ancestors ate based on their location like we actually have evidence based on fossilized stool samples. Showing that they were eating over 100 grams of fiber a day. That's more fiber than most vegans are eating. And fiber only comes from plants. Depending on where they're located, the paleo or the Paleolithic diet, the true Paleolithic diet would be completely different. There is no one Paleo diet. So anybody who wants to promote their diet as the Paleo diet, it's false. It's 100% false because there was no one Paleo diet. And so I would, uh, again, even if we were to try to eat like our paleo ancestors i don't know why we would want that because their life expectancy was like a couple decades right they would live (laughs) they they would live long enough to reproduce and then they would die like that that was it evolution only cares about you living long enough to reproduce right it doesn't care our goals today are different our my goal is to live you know well into my late you know 90s or 100s or whatever and to be mobile and active and and uh to to hopefully prevent uh any major diseases throughout my life. That's my goal. My goal isn't to live to be twenty five. If that's the goal, I've already passed that, right? <laughs> so I don't understand the whole um, paleo thing or why it's such a big deal. Because it just there is no one paleo diet, and again, there are healthier diets out there. It's certainly a step up from a lot of the garbage out there, but uh, that's a really low bar to set.
1: Also, the types of foods that people were eating back then were just so different. When I see people who are consuming a paleo diet. They're eating the mass amounts of meat. And from my understanding, people back then were eating what they could hunt. (laughs) And sometimes that was scarce. So it just it's it's one diet that I don't I really don't understand it.
2: The whole theory behind it makes no sense. But also, so Lauren Cordain, who's one of the fathers of the paleo movement, he actually wrote a really good paper about what optimal cholesterol levels are. Basically, they found based on our ape ans- or our, um, ape cousins, our um, levels as newborns, our LDL cholesterol levels should be quite low, between like about 50 and 70 milligrams per deciliter. And I'm going to get a little technical here, but that's, that's basically where atherosclerosis, heart disease, just doesn't really develop if you maintain levels like that. Now, he's the father of the paleo movement, and he's recommending that. And funny thing is, in today's day and age, the only people with levels averaging in that range are vegans. Other diet groups generally don't. And that's because even the meat back then, like the wild uh, uh, meats that, that a lot of these paleo ancestors would have been eating, if any, was very low in saturated fat. It's far, a far cry from what we're having today with factory farm meat who's just fattened up to be as obese as possible so we can you know, eat them and um, and so they can grow as fast as possible and all that. It's completely different food. The, the meat that people are eating today is is nowhere near what it would have been back then.
1: The other day I was chatting with a friend of mine and she was telling me about how many eggs her sister eats. Mm -hmm. And she eats one of those whole, uh, you know, those big giant giant crates of them. Oh yeah. She and her family of four eat a whole one in a week. And I said, oh my gosh, the cholesterol. And she said that her sister said that the cholesterol (laughs) is good cholesterol and that um, it's actually really healthy for her to eat that many eggs. And I I didn't really know what to say. I'm not a nutrition expert, and so how would how would you suggest I handle that in the future?
2: Yeah, um, well, it's it's a really complicated topic. That like saturated fat is even more clear than the dietary cholesterol thing. But with cholesterol, basically, what happens is there's a plateau. So if you eat no cholesterol, like one of us, because we're vegan and you add cholesterol in, you actually get a larger spike in your actual serum blood levels of cholesterol. If you already eat your standard American diet or or something, and you're already eating a fair amount of cholesterol in a day, and you add more cholesterol, you don't notice much of a difference at all. So that's usually what happens. And so what her sister is probably basing this on is actually studies done on populations that eat generally a fair amount of cholesterol to begin with, Yeah, adding cholesterol in that case, not going to have an impact. As far as the argument on good cholesterol, um, she's probably talking about the ability of of eating cholesterol to raise HDL or good cholesterol in our bloodstream. But we now know that that has no impact. Um, There's studies on people with genetically higher levels and they don't have a reduced risk of heart disease. There's also studies on medications that were being developed to raise those levels. And again, no difference. So good cholesterol actually doesn't seem to have much of an effect at all. And eating cholesterol does have a negative impact, but a bigger negative impact in people who already don't eat cholesterol to begin with.
0: I have a sort of interesting personal story. My husband, one time he fell and hit his head and got a concussion and went to the hospital and had to get all these brain scans and everything. And so he went and saw this doctor who was a doctor who had been practicing for so many decades. He was an older doctor and the doctor took Dan's cholesterol. Mm. And he was like, Oh my God, your cholesterol is the lowest I've ever seen on a patient ever. And I mean, we're, we're vegan. Dan had been vegan for a while, but like, we're not super health food, vegans, anything, but he, he had super low cholesterol. And Dan was like, should I be concerned about that? And the doctor was like, well, I'll tell you this. I would never recommend to a patient to eat more cholesterol so like Mm -hmm. even when dan's cholesterol was the lowest this older doctor had ever seen in patient history he was like nah just keep doing what you're doing
2: (laughs) yeah and that's because there aren't uh, really negative impacts from having lower cholesterol there's been studies on drugs called pcsk9 inhibitors which really just abolish your cholesterol levels down to next to nothing and no negative impacts on hormones or anything there's uh, the same thing with um, people with genetically really low levels. They don't have issues producing hormones. There's no real negative impact like that because our bodies are cholesterol conserving machines. Like our bodies are so good at making sure that we have just enough to do what it needs to do and and not having more than that. And we're also really good at uh, absorbing and, and producing um, uh, cholesterol when, when we need to as well. So there's no real negative impact. Um, there's actually, this is a really funny one. There's some claims out there that you need, you need to eat cholesterol for brain health. I don't know if you've heard that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm, I've heard it.
2: Yeah, th- there's this claim that you need uh, cholesterol for your brain health, for your hormones in your brain, whatever. Cholesterol does not cross the blood-brain barrier. It's actually impossible. So that's a total myth based on nothing. Um, cholesterol does not cross into the brain. Our brain has its own set of cholesterol that it produces and, and does everything with. So again, yeah, that's totally false. Um, The one thing though, oxidized cholesterol. So when you're eating a lot of cholesterol and some of it gets oxidized um, into this other more harmful molecule that actually is responsible largely for heart disease, that can cross into the brain and actually may contribute to Alzheimer's disease. So if anything, the only uh, impact cholesterol is gonna have on your brain health is negative.
0: So just to reiterate, if someone's trying to eat an optimal healthy diet, Mm -hmm. eggs, yes or no?
2: I would say no.
0: The next big thing that we hear all the time is people who are scared of soy, which is a big thing, especially if someone, it's the new year, they want to start eating plant-based and they're stepping into, you know, vegan living for the first time. A lot of the products out there are made from soy. And if they're going to try and avoid soy, it makes things much, much harder. Should people be scared of soy? What do you think?
2: So the, the idea that soy is estrogenic, that's normally the biggest concern. It comes from a few different places. For one, there have been rodent studies. So they take you know rats or other rodents and they give them really high concentrations of just the phytoestrogen that's found in soy. It's like a plant sort of estrogen. It has a similar structure to estrogen, but it's different. It's about one one thousandth the strength of actual estrogen. So it's a very weak estrogen. So there's that. And then there's another case, uh, or there's two cases where men were consuming from 12 to 20 servings of soy per day, and they ended up actually experiencing a bit of breast growth. So that that's actually where I came from. But that's that's a ridiculously high amount, right? That's, tw- that's a whole gallon of soy milk plus other soy products on top of that. It was just uh, ridiculous. When we look at any of the data on, say, soy consumption through Asian countries, where they consume more than here we actually find that those who consume the most soy versus the least have better health outcomes and actually don't experience any negative hormonal effects. So, soy consumption actually reduces breast cancer risk, reduces prostate cancer risk, endometrial cancer risk, may help with hot flashes, may help reduce cardiovascular disease risk. So, it's just beneficial across the board. I would never recommend someone to have 20 servings a day of anything, really. But, uh, you know, if you're having the kind of average one to five or even a bit more than that servings per day, yeah, there's no risk there. There's no documented risk in any way.
1: Matt also wrote an article on plant-based on a budget with Mm -hmm. more information and citations and stuff if anyone wants to check that out. Okay, so what about carbs? I know a lot of people, I posted a picture of rice and beans uh, (laughs) recently on Instagram and people were like, carbs, oh my gosh. Can you talk more about carbs and why people are so afraid of them?
2: Yeah, there's a couple things. Um, I think weight. Again, we were talking about weight loss earlier. I think that's a big one. It's the idea that carbs get converted to fat. That's actually not true. And I made a post about that. So, carbs get converted to fat in a process in our liver called de novo lipogenesis. But ultimately, the conversion of carbs to fat is incredibly minor. It's it's uh, you know a few percent of what you're eating. So they actually did studies where they overfed people, greatly overfed people on either fat or um, straight sugar. And they found that the group overfeeding on fat actually put on more weight a little bit. It wasn't a big difference, but a little bit. And they measured the conversion of carbs to fat and it was incredibly small. So what actually happens when people are eating a lot of sugar or carby foods, they're burning those carbs as energy because it's the preferred energy source. And then the fat that they've eaten through the throughout the day is actually what preferentially gets stored as fat. Um, now there are exceptions. If you eat a just absolutely ridiculous amount, then yeah, that can change. But for the most part, uh, in that sense, there's no real, uh, issue there on top of that, um, carbohydrate or low carb diets are associated with a variety of diseases like heart disease and, and certain forms of cancer, which we've already talked about. And fruits, like I mentioned earlier, are incredibly helpful. And that's one of the sources of carbs that people seem to fear the most. The other one are whole grains. So these are things like brown rice, quinoa, um, oats, buckwheat, millet, sorghum, and and there's way more as well. Those foods are across the board uh, associated with a lower risk of either heart disease, diabetes, uh, certain forms of cancer, like colorectal cancer, and just beneficial. There's actually not a single study, as far as I I know, linking whole grain consumption to any kind of disease um, or even inflammation whereas maybe refined grains, refined processed ga- grains like pastries or even white rice maybe uh, might be associated. But as far as the the whole grains go, we should absolutely not fear them. And uh, the carb fear or the carb phobia is not really predicated on, on the bulk of the science.
0: I do have a personal question re- regarding carbs. So I grew up eating... I went vegetarian when I was eight years old and the until I went vegan in college, my main source of calories was from pasta and cereal. And somehow I survived. But but still, I have a, a deep love for pasta. And now I'm much more health conscious and I love fruits and vegetables and all the healthy whole grains and foods and everything. But these days, it's super trendy to be trying alternative pastas that are made from lentils and beans and whole grains. And of course, those are packed with far more nutrients than just standard semolina pasta. But if you're eating like an otherwise healthy diet where you're getting tons of nutrients, you're eating whole grains, you're eating fruits and everything, is it harmful to be eating just semolina pasta in your in your opinion from time to time? I mean,
2: I would say uh, having anything time to time, depending on what time to time <laughs> means, isn't going to be super harmful. If you're having something once a week, once every other week is probably not going to be a big deal. But um, semolina, is that whole wheat or is it uh, white or uh, I'm not sure? let me
0: look it up. Uh, Semolina is
2: like the grain that's white in pasta. Okay, yeah. So, So I mean, basically, if you're having white pasta, a better option would be the whole wheat pasta. Pastas in general, if you're going with whole wheat are actually pretty healthful. They're pretty nutritious. You can get some with a pretty good fiber content as well, meaning that there wasn't a whole lot added to it. And they're totally fine. I know there's the trend towards more um, alternative pastas and I do eat them. I have some like chickpea pastas and lentil pastas as well. But I mix it up. Like if I've had a lot of legumes one day and I wanna make pasta for dinner, then I'll go for the whole wheat pasta because I've already had a, a fair share of of legumes and maybe I haven't had a ton of whole grains. And then if it's the other way around, if I'm lacking um, legumes that day, I'll go with the, the lentil or chickpea pasta, right? So um, I don't think there's really any harm there.
0: Yeah, just mix it up. I love it. Also, for anyone listening who's getting hungry, listening to all of these ideas, (laughs) I was browsing your website before this call and just you have such delicious looking recipes on there that are so wholesome, healthy, and it was just re-inspiring me to get a little more creative with infusing health and choosing healthier options for things like the base of pasta in my dishes.
2: I only have a few recipes up there now. I should probably do more too, but the biggest one or the most popular one is my mom's actually like vegan butter chicken or butter tofu recipe. It's by far the most popular and it's super, super good. And she just like, she perfected it. It's exactly like the butter chicken she used to make uh, when it was like had buttermilk in it and when it had uh, chicken and everything. Um, the only difference is you swap out the tofu for the the um, uh, chicken and then you swap, uh, I think it was um, like a cashew cream for the, For the buttermilk and it was like exactly the same.
0: Oh my gosh. Go mama. (laughs) Okay. Speaking of your mom. So your mom, when you first went plant-based, she was concerned for your calcium. Mm -hmm. She was like, you're not drinking milk. How are you going to get calcium? How are your bones going to stay strong? You're still growing. You're a growing boy. This is the concern that so many parents have, but also just everyone who's making a transition away from dairy, I think has that thought are my bones get bones going to start breaking? Am I, you know, what's going to happen down the line? So what would you say to those people?
2: Yeah, so it's actually funny. There's this massive study on vegetarians and vegans in the UK called the Epic Oxford study. And actually, I might as well uh, mention while we're at it that that study did find that vegans and vegetarians have lower mortality risks, a so lower death risk during the study period, compared to the omnivores, particularly if they had stuck with the diet over long term. So that's just a kind of a side point, but that study found that the vegans and vegetarians did have higher fracture risk. However, when you actually look at their calcium intake, when you find that vegans, uh, when you looked at only the vegans and vegetarians who consumed at least 525 milligrams of calcium per day, for reference, the RDI is about a thousand milligrams for most people. So it's, if as long as they were consuming about half of the calcium that they're supposed to, their fracture risk was no greater than omnivores. So essentially, if you're getting at least half of what you're supposed to be getting, you're good to go. So for calcium, uh, I'm not usually too concerned about it if they're eating an overall varied healthful diet, really good sources of calcium are things like firm tofu or extra firm tofu, half a block of extra firm tofu can get you more than I think it's like 600 milligrams or something just ridiculously high. Soy milk or any other plant milks can also be really good sources because they're fortified. And then there's legumes, certain dark leafy greens like uh, bok choy, for example, broccoli is a really good one. It's really not that hard to get uh, the calcium that we need in a day. And as long as you're getting kind of the bare minimum uh, amount of calcium, uh, like the 525 milligrams, there doesn't seem to be any kind of increased risk.
0: I've heard things going around about, about dairy, calcium and dairy, or dairy actually leaching calcium from your bones. Is that a myth as well?
2: Yeah, that that that's a myth on the other side. I think that's a myth that is is propagated by a lot of a lot of vegans out there, and it's not really based on anything. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't pay too much attention to that one. There's this association between countries that consume more dairy and having higher fracture risk. But what actually may be the case there is that the countries that consume the most dairy, for the most part, are also countries that get less sunshine and therefore less vitamin D. And um, so it might actually be the lower vitamin D that's causing uh, the higher fracture risk. And we actually have studies looking at dairy consumption and vitamin D levels. And when you control for the vitamin D levels, you actually find that there's no more increase in risk. So I I definitely, um, that's one that I think every vegan at one point or another has said, but I just don't think it's true.
0: You know what? I would love to have you back on to talk about myths that vegans propagate. (laughs)
1: Because
0: I I think that's something everyone's a little bit scared to talk about because you don't want to like, you know, persuade someone in the opposite direction, but it's so important to have accurate health information. And God, you're just such a wealth oh, of knowledge. We, we have enough inf- we, we
2: Yeah, we have enough evidence to promote a plant-based diet. Let's make that very clear.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're running out of time. So Michelle, let's each pick a question to ask. And I'm going to ask, what is the deal with collagen? I keep hearing all about it and I don't understand it. So what's up with that?
2: Yeah. So collagen supplements are being promoted for just about everything these days from hair health to skin health, joints, um, make you younger, whatever. There's pretty much little to no research on most of those topics where there is a little bit of research is on skin and joint health. And so with collagen, it's important to note that collagen is a protein. It's actually a very big protein and we make it in our bodies. Um, it's a part of most of our body structures, and. When we eat proteins, we break them apart into individual amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, um, in our digestive tract, and then we absorb them, and then we make proteins in our body, and, and one of those proteins is collagen. So even from a kind of theoretical standpoint, if you're eating collagen, you're just breaking it down, and they're going to build it back up again. Right? There, there's no, it's not like you eat collagen, it goes directly to your bones. Right? It doesn't make sense. But then when we look at research on, say, joint health, We actually do find that compared to a placebo powder, collagen does seem to improve joint health a little bit, improve joint pain a bit. But guess what? So does milk protein and so does soy protein. And so when we're looking at at these things, it's not the fact that it's collagen that's helping. It actually appears that just protein itself seems to help. And on top of that, I would say soy protein is even better because soy protein is anti-inflammatory, whereas the collagen protein has not been shown to be anti-inflammatory. So from that standpoint, um, there's nothing special about collagen. There's absolutely nothing there. It's just the fact that it, um, uh, it is a protein that provides these, these building blocks, which are amino acids. That seems to be where the, where the real benefit is. Uh, what we should be worrying about is a, you know, making sure our nutrition is good, but vitamin C is really important for collagen production as well. And where do you find that in your uh, fruits and veggies?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay. One more trend that we want to talk about is bone broth. I know the last time that Tony and I went to the Natural Products Expo West, it's like every year that we go there, this big trade show with tons of the latest in the natural food space, you always see trends popping up. And uh, collagen was a few years back that started coming into everything, but bone broth was a big one this last time. Can you talk a little bit to that? Is there any science to the benefits of bone broth?
2: Yeah, so I actually did this on my Instagram stories recently. And so if people want to watch it, um, where I go through it point by point, you can uh, see it. I have a story highlight just titled Bone Broth on Instagram, but it's hilarious. So there's only eight studies on bone broth, period, the, with the term bone broth in it, that have ever been published on PubMed uh, because I searched them all. And so two of them are completely irrelevant. Two of them are talking about like production methods, and one of them is about like bacterial composition or something. And then Two of them are animal studies again, so we're looking at rodent studies. Again, um, it's interesting, sure, but probably doesn't have much to do with uh, human health. And then two of them are looking at mineral and and heavy metal content. So both of these actually found that bone broth is a significant source of lead. Lead is really not good for us. Uh, I believe everyone should understand that by now. And they actually found lead levels exceeding what is considered safe in our water supply. Lead poisoning can lead to all sorts of things like growth stunting and, and a variety of other health issues. And then there was two of them actually looking at humans. So one of them was a study comparing, again, collagen to another protein powder, but both groups got bone broth as well. So the protein was like mixed into bone broth. That doesn't tell us anything about bone broth because both groups got it. So again, completely irrelevant. And then the last one was actually looking at the content of bone broth and they found that because one of the claims around bone broth is that it's a good source of uh, collagen building blocks, like I was just talking about amino acids, they found that it's a very poor source of collagen precursors. That is the entirety of the science behind bone broth. That is all that there exists. So anybody who ever makes a health claim around bone broth, it is not based on the evidence. It is not evidence-based at all. They have not read the science because it just simply does not exist.
0: It's crazy how a trend will pop up and it becomes not only widespread across thousands of companies, a keyword, probably one of the top searches yeah. on the internet everywhere, and then just becomes absorbed by humans as this is a health fact. Yeah. You just said a lot of things that I wouldn't have even expected or or had any you know, idea about. It, so wow.
2: Like, like it's not only that bone broth isn't beneficial based on that, it might be harmful because of the lead content. Like that's what we, no one's warned. I I bet nobody who's selling bone broth is warning. Oh, by the way, bone broth has been shown to contain fair amounts of lead. Like no, no one is saying that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Okay, so (laughs) we've covered a lot of the trends and the fads, uh, which is really, really extremely helpful to keep in mind this new year while we're planning and setting our intentions. But can you tell us some of the benefits that people can expect to see when they go plant-based, both immediate and in the future?
2: Yeah. So immediately short-term people generally uh, feel greater energy. Um, If you are, if you're say feeling more fatigued right off the bat, my biggest tip would be to eat more. What can happen is because plants are so much lower in calories, uh, sometimes you end up eating the same amount of food, but getting way less calories and you're lacking in energy. So as long as you're eating enough food, usually you feel boost in energy. Sometimes there's weight loss, sometimes uh, skin health improves, joint pain may even improve. There's a lot of really short-term benefits like that. But in the long term, what it comes down to is reducing risk of, of heart disease, type 2 diabetes. If you have um, diabetes or, or high blood pressure, for example, you may notice that come down drastically. And, and if you're on medication for those conditions, it's actually really important to speak with your doctor to let them know uh, because you might need to even reduce your medication use, which is a really good thing. Um, and it, otherwise, in the long term, I think One of the benefits that doesn't get talked about a lot is that you end up, at least this is my experience, you end up actually further diversifying your diet. You end up learning new things, new ways to prepare foods, new ways, new flavors, new spices, um, new fruits that you never heard of before. Um, I think there's that huge benefit that comes along with it. And you just end up discovering all these things. Like I always get asked do you miss? Um, do you miss eating meat? Do you miss having cheese or whatever? And, and not really. The, what I'm so grateful for is all these discoveries I've made that I never would have before. I'll, I went traveling through through Thailand and having all the exotic fruits that I never would have even heard of before. That was what was really amazing to me. So yeah, there's benefits uh, all over, and uh, I, I think uh, I think most people who who adopt it will probably notice that pretty quickly.
1: Great. Well, we are so grateful to you for spending time with us chatting about these and helping our audience figure out the best ways to be healthy in this new year.
2: Thanks uh, thanks for having me letting me uh, spread the message.
1: Is there any final words that you want to share
0: and then where can our audience find you to connect?
2: Anything to share right off the uh, to finish up, I would say probably when you're when you're trying to transition, there's a couple simple things to do. For one, you can start one meal at a time. Start with breakfast. You know, try out your oatmeal, tofu scrambles, toast, whatever it is that you like to do, and just uh, make it plant based and try try to stick with it for a couple weeks. Once you've got that dialed, move on to the next meal, and then you know you can do the same thing and move on to dinner. I think that's a really easy way to ensure long term success. And then beyond that, is you can take what you're already eating and pretty easily transition it if you have. Like I was talking about spaghetti with meat sauce, well, you change it to whole grain spaghetti and you add tomato sauce instead and then maybe chop up some veggies or ground tofu in the sauce. And you've got a perfectly healthy vegan meal right there. And it's probably somewhat similar to what you're already used to having. So I like to work with people on just using what their diet already looks like and just just making some simple changes like that.
1: That sounds great. And where can people find you?
2: So I do have a website you mentioned earlier, drmatthewniagra.com. I post some longer articles there. I've also, if you're located in British Columbia, Canada, I'm happy to to see you as a, a patient as well. My booking link's all there. Otherwise, Instagram is where I'm most active. Also at Dr. Matinagra, dr. Negra. I'm also on Facebook at the same name and Twitter, although I'm not quite as active on those platforms. Uh, but those are kind of the, the main places I think to find me.
1: Cool. and of course, we would really love to have you back on the on the podcast, maybe next season too discuss even more wonderful plant-based nutrition information.
2: 100%.
1: Stay tuned for that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Nagra. Thanks for having me. Wow, that was really good. I I just appreciate so much how he's into evidence-based nutrition and he's so thoroughly researched. I know that it makes me feel more comfortable sharing with my audience when they have questions uh, because he is so full of facts. So thank you again, Matt. And if you haven't yet followed him, please go follow him on Instagram. There's a lot of good stuff over there.
0: Also, if you're looking for even more health inspiration for this January or new year, or whenever you're listening to this episode, be sure to head over to plant powered podcast.com where you can see some of our past episodes that have been health focused episode number 24, we did tips for getting and staying healthy. Episode 23 was with Eric Gray about his 150 pound weight loss journey to health with his dog Petey. We have an episode with Karen Brockaway that's really inspiring. So if you're looking for inspiration and haven't yet caught up on our past episodes, we encourage you to do that. And again, that's at plantpoweredpodcast.com. You can also listen, of course, on iTunes podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And And if you want to leave a review, we would so love that. This episode, once again, was sponsored by our cookbook, The Friendly Vegan Cookbook. Thank you again to everyone who has been supporting us in this journey, who's supported our book it really just warms our hearts and means the world to us. And also those of you who have left reviews of our cookbook on Amazon. Oh my gosh, it makes it... We check them frequently. It makes our day. And it also makes such a difference for us as authors. You know, we put our hearts and souls into these podcasts and these episodes and all of the content we create. So if you want to give give back to us in a little way, um, getting our book is a great way to do that. And leaving leaving a review for our book on Amazon would be so incredible. Thank you all so much for listening and tuning in. We wish you all the very best. Keep your January going strong. We love you lots and we will talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.